Grab your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 20 today for our text. On Wednesday night, if you want to read ahead, you can read Luke 20. Uh, We'll cover that, Lord willing, in its entirety. But I'd like to draw your attention to just a couple verses from that upcoming Wednesday night chapter. Jesus is going to speak of something that he uh, mentioned several times, and then it's mentioned all throughout the Bible. And this is one of those things, I remember as a little kid hearing about this notion that Jesus is gonna bring up, but I, it took me a while before I realized um, not only is it a major theme in the Bible, but it actually deals with really important uh, concepts about Christ, who he is, uh, what he's done. And, um, and it's, it's, it's a, an analogy that Jesus is gonna use here in our text. Uh, but before we get to that, um, has, have any of you guys seen any of the news lately on the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem? If, you're, if you follow the news, um, it's been kind of a big deal in the last year or two. Um, they've, they've been doing digs. I remember back when I used to go to Israel back in the 90s, um, everybody said, you know, this is the Pool of Siloam. And there's this little pool there, um, about half the size of your swimming pool in your backyard, if you have one, just this little pool. And, and, um, and I remember thinking, this is the Pool of Siloam. And it just didn't feel right to me. It's right at the end of the Hezekiah's Tunnel. Maybe you, if you've been there years ago, you saw that. But, um, but shortly after that, somewhere in the 2000s, some, some archeological experts were arguing that's not the Pool of Siloam and it's, it's nearby. Then they started digging and finding, they found these steps uh, that some guys suggested, these are the steps that went into the Pool of Siloam. Um, and I saw that for a few years and we've taken groups and sat on the steps. In fact, here's some pictures. Um, uh, but, but recently, I'm gonna say in the last couple of years, um, They've confirmed now that the, the, there's an artist rendering of the Pool of Siloam during the time of Jesus, uh, the first century pool. Uh, and it's there in, in the ancient city of David. Um, but this is our group, I think one of our last trips uh, where we're sitting on these steps. Now, since then, they've done way more excavation and they're, they're, they've confirmed just archeologically that the Pool of Siloam was there. And it's just kind of cool. The reason I love that is it's, it's cool that it was the place where Jesus healed the blind man in John chapter nine. Um, it's amazing. It's a site where all the pilgrims that went into Jerusalem to worship, they'd go to the Pool of Siloam, do a ceremonial cleansing there, and then they'd go up the pilgrimage road up to the Southern Steps and go onto the Temple Mount. Archeologists call it the most important half mile stretch in all of archeology span in the world. Um, and it is. It, the city of David, they've been digging there and doing some really amazing things. It's, it's inspiring. In fact, the, the discovery of the Pool of Siloam and, and, it's, and seeing what it really was, it's one of the most uh, inspiring archaeological affirmations of the Bible. That's one of the things I love about the archaeology in Israel is it only is confirming over and over again the, the validity of what the Bible actually says. The pipe-puffing cardigan sweater wearing professors there in the colleges uh, who are talking about the Jesus seminar and you know the, the historical Jesus and Jesus really wasn't who he was married to Mary Magdalene and lived in Britain and whatever they're saying now um, it's they're all just whacked um, but the Bible just continues to say no Jesus was real the story of the Bible is real and remember how last week in Luke chapter 19 verse 40 the Pharisee said hey tell your people to stop saying Hosanna and Jesus said if these should hold their peace even the stones will cry out. Um, that's a rock concert I'd like to hear, those rocks crying out, Hosanna to the Lord. And we're not talking Mick Jagger, uh, the Rolling Stones. We're talking about, about the stones of Jerusalem. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, the stones are crying out right now, archeologically, which is so cool. They're just declaring Jesus was here. The Bible is accurate. Um, that's what I love about the Pool of Siloam. Speaking of stones, um, one of the places I take people is, this is one of the videos we shot last time we were in the, um, the, these are called the rabbi tunnels. If you go to the Western Wailing Wall, you can drop down in these tunnels and see the lower, under the ground sections of the wall. Now these stones you're looking at here are Ottoman Turk era, like 500 years old, they're, they're brand new. Um, they're about this big. They're just, they're stones that are stacked. You can tell the difference. The bigger the stone, the older. Behind Steve, our tour guide here, is one of the Solomon era stones, 40 feet by 10 feet by 10 feet. It's the size of a school bus. And nobody even knows how did they actually get that stone in Jerusalem, because they're known to be quarried outside of the city. And uh, it's kind of cool. Now, now, did any of you guys uh, play with Legos? 
<laughs> if you were a Lego person, um, one of the things that's really kind of cool is, uh, you, you know, you could start with your, your basic, you had to start with kind of a basic, you know, Lego brick, and then you start building from there. But that's the way they did the temple in Solomon's era. They, they hewed the stones out in a quarry, stacked them, and probably built the temple, in a sense, outside. Uh, and then they deconstructed the temple, moved it into Jerusalem. And, and the reason why is the law said no chisel should be heard in, in, on the temple mount. No stone should be cut. So, so they hauled these huge stones. We don't even know how that, it'd be hard for us to do that today. But not only were they accurately stacked and built, but you can't even fit a, a blade of a knife between the stones. It's, they're so perfectly hewn. Uh, it's, it's a real wonder of the ancient engineering world. Now, um, the reason that's kind of cool is uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a story, and this all kind of plays into what we're going to talk about. Um, but there's a story about the stones. When they were building the temple, um, they were having trouble in the time of Solomon. And by the way, this is a picture of Athey Creekers. We're standing near the lower southern section of the, of the uh, western wall. And this is cool because there's a Roman's road that's, that we're standing on. But see the pile of rocks there? They're huge. Those are the very rocks that the Romans in AD 70 threw over the wall that was the temple, part of the temple, uh, when they destroyed the temple in AD 70. Um, but you can see there's different sizes of stones on that wall. And, you can, and if you're an archaeological, uh, even a kind of a tourist, you can identify what era the stones are from. But one of the things that's really important is uh, the story goes where when Solomon was building the temple, they were struggling because they built it outside in a quarry, they brought it in, but they couldn't figure out how it all fit together. It's like they numbered the stones, but forgot to do it accurately. Um, they found one stone, like, what's this? And they tossed it aside and said, yeah, whatever. And they, and they tried to construct the temple. And what they realized is they had rejected the main stone of the beginning. Like when you did your Lego project, uh, especially you old, younger people who have the Star Wars X-Wing fighter Lego set or whatever, you had to have the right Lego. And if you didn't have the right, remember when you had the set, but you couldn't find that one Lego? That, that was the problem in the temple. And they, they realized that the stone that the builders rejected, now some of you Bible people are starting to go, oh, I know where you're going with this. The stone which the builders rejected, they realized it wasn't just a stone, it was the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, the one that you're supposed to start the whole project with. And, um, and that was the story of, uh, that was told throughout the ages of the Solomon's building of the temple. Fast forward to Luke chapter 20. Um, Jesus is gonna refer to this, and uh, if this is a big deal in the Bible. That's why we're looking at all this. Let's take a look. Luke chapter 20, verse 17 begins there. It says, and he beheld them. Uh, the word beheld sounds so King James. He looked directly at them, and this is important. Who's he looking at? He beheld them and said, what is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected. The same has become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes, the same hour sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. You think? <laughs> Duh. These guys are, I think he's talking about us. Which part? The part where it says uh, there in verse 18, but on whomsoever the stone shall fall, it will grind him to powder. These religious leaders like, I think he's talking about us. Let's lay hands on him. Oh, but the people like him. What are we gonna do? So they're, they're totally afraid, but they're saying, I think he's talking about us. Now we're gonna see as the story goes on, they're gonna, this is where they're gonna ultimately get to where they wanna crucify Jesus. But with all that said, you know, good perception. It was against them. The Bible speaks on this passage many times. This idea of the cornerstone that was rejected. And Jesus quotes, notice in your Bible, next to verse 18 or nine, uh, verse 17 and 18, um, notice there's a, there's a cross-reference scripture next to it, probably if you have a Bible with references. Psalm 118, 22. Jesus says, it is written. And when he says that, he's quoting from the Old Testament. Now, before we go to Psalm 118, 22 and see what that actually says, um, did you know that Peter and the disciples, they used the same reference later on? Now, the disciples were totally afraid after Jesus died on the cross, shaken in their sandals. Sure, they were gonna be killed by the same people that killed Jesus, the Sanhedrin, religious leaders. But then, then you see a very different disciple in Acts chapter four. What was the biggest difference 
But between when the disciples in John 20 were freaking out, shaking in their sandals, to Acts chapter four, when they're boldly declaring uh, in front of the, the priests their error of crucifying Jesus, there's one big difference, it's the Holy Spirit. Check it out, would you flip over to Acts chapter four with me? Turn in your Bible from there, uh, from Luke 20 to Acts chapter four. Um, now in Acts chapter four, the, the, uh, Peter and John and the guys, they just healed an impotent man. And, um, and everybody saw it, it was right before their eyes. Um, so the Sanhedrin, they call Peter and James and John and the guys in and say, by what authority do you heal this guy? You know, and who do you think you guys are? Um, these are the same guys that killed Jesus, had the power to do that. And what does Peter say? That's where we pick it up in Acts 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, that's the key right there, said unto them, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Wow, bold, Peter's bold, I love this. Um, but notice he goes on, here's where we get to the operative part, verse 11. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Um, this is the cornerstone that was set aside by the builders. Peter's talking about what Jesus was talking about in Luke 20. Now, let's finish. I gotta read a few more verses because this story's great. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Man, these guys shut their mouths with the powerful testimony by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he called them out saying, you're the builders who rejected the chief cornerstone. And, um, and, and, and then they also said, there's no other name under heaven. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than that of Jesus Christ. What a bold and powerful thing. Now notice, if your Bible has little margins, references, verse, verse 11 there has next to it, Psalm 118, 22. So again, Peter now is quoting what Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament. Um, now, by the way, the cornerstone, uh, uh, if you're a brick mason, uh, you, you know about this. You, you gotta start with a good, uh, your, your first block that you lay or, or brick, you gotta make sure it's, it's online, on level, perfectly. If you start with a cattywampus brick or block, your whole wall's gonna be messed up. And, and that was true in ancient times, whether they were building pyramids in their cornerstones or a big wall like in Jerusalem, all these Jerusalem walls, you start with a nice, solid, perfectly perfect um, you know, cornerstone. That's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying Jesus is the cornerstone um, and it's because he's perfect, but it was the stone that was rejected and despised. Um, now that the, the, the Sanhedrin said, stop talking about Jesus. But Peter and James and John just kept talking about him because they said, you have rejected the, the cornerstone. Um, by the way, I love how they, mar they said, they, they marvel that they were unlearned and ignorant men. The, the Jerusalem guys were the brainiacs of the day, the, the uh, academic world. And J Jews from Galilee were considered to be hicks. Remember when they said, Peter, he talks like a Galilean. The Galileans had an accent and, and there's writings in ancient history that basically say that everybody thought Galileans were a bunch of backwoods hicks, like, like dumb guys. It'd be a little bit like, um, you know, if, if we're walking and you meet somebody and, they say, and you say, how you doing? They say, tell you what, darn tootin'. Partner, tell you what, like if they're talking like that, you're like, oh, they're probably from the deep south and, you know, maybe shooting uh, alligators and stuff like that. Um, you know, shoot, shoot them, cooter, you know, like that kind of stuff. Um, that's the way they thought of the disciples, a bunch of backwoods hicks. So here's the backwoods hicks coming and boldly proclaiming that Jesus was the stone they rejected and they marveled. These are unlearned men but they noted that they had been with Jesus who was the cornerstone which they rejected. Um, good thing Jesus is the cornerstone. If it was you uh, or if it was me, 
the, the wall, the building would be uh, cattywampus and messed up, but Jesus is the cornerstone. So, th- so what does the Psalm 118.22 say? Well, check it out. It's, uh, I'll just put it up here for quick speed. The stone, Psalm 118, the stone which the builders refused has become the head corner, uh, headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Um, now, we've come to several words. Uh, you know, uh, one said uh, refused here in Psalm. Uh, we, we see set at not, set aside because it was refused or rejected. Um, there's different words used um, about the stone being rejected. Now, why would the psalmist say this is a marvelous thing in our eyes? What's marvelous about a stone that um, was rejected? Well, what this starts to tell us is, is the psalmist, when he wrote this, you know, long before Jesus came and was the rejected cornerstone, this is a prophetic word from the psalmist about what God's plan was. See, the the Jews didn't know Jesus was coming in a first advent and a second advent. First coming, he'd come as a carpenter. Second coming, as a king. First time he came to be judged by man. The next time he comes, the second coming of Christ, he'd be the judge over all humanity. Uh, The first time he came humbly. The next time he comes boldly as a conquering king. Like there's two advents. And it's even talked about in the Old Testament. The Jews just didn't see it. This is one of those things. The stone, Jesus which would be the rejected or refused has become the head of the cornerstone. This was planned from the beginning that Jesus would be despised and rejected and ultimately killed on the cross for the sins of all humanity. But raising up from the dead and then coming a second time, we, we have yet to see that happen, but that's gonna happen. So um, Jesus adds something now. So if we go back to Luke chapter 20 in our text, um, what did Jesus add to what the psalmist said there? When we look at this, well, again, just put it up on the screen for speed. Whosoever, Jesus said there in Luke 20, whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And the psalmist said, isn't this marvelous? Now, wait a minute. What's marvelous about being crushed by a stone and being ground into powder? Did you notice Jesus is basically giving here in our text of Luke chapter 20, verse 18, two options, question, which person would you rather be? Person A, whoever shall fall upon the stone shall be broken. Or person B, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Which one would you choose? A, I'd choose A all day long. I'd rather be broken before him, on him, than ground up into powder by him. There's a big difference here, and that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, everyone falls into one of these two categories. You will either be broken by him or before him, or um, you'll be crushed and destroyed. Um, What does it mean to be broken before the Lord? Well, I believe being broken before the Lord is what needs to happen for all of us. Um, Because we're all sinners. We've all sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. We need to be broken before him. That's that's a good thing. Uh, Whoever shall fall upon the stone and be broken, uh, shall be broken. What does the Bible say about brokenness? Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near, or the word King James, nigh. The Lord is near unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Um, We were far off from the Lord, Isaiah 59, one and two says, because of our sin and he's hid his face from us. But when we are broken humbly before the Lord and recognize the word might be repent, as we repent and acknowledge our sins before God, guess what? We're back near to God. We're restored to God. Atonement is what that's called, where we're um, made uh, united with God again when we're broken before God. Um, that's, that's what Psalm 34 says. Psalm 51 similarly uh, says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. We were at first far from God, but the Lord says, a broken person who's humble and repentant, coming broken before God, suddenly the rock becomes a firm foundation to stand on. It's not a rock you're gonna be crushed by, it's a rock whereby you're gonna be saved. This is what the Bible is talking about. So big question of the day, have you been broken before God, humbled and repentant before God? You know, what I've noticed is over the years as a Christian, I got saved at the ripe old age of five. 
And I don't have much of a testimony. When I was a kid, maybe you older people in the room remember back in the 70s when it was really cool to be a Christian and say, yeah, man, before I was saved, dude, I, I, I did, you know, I did LSD and I was sleeping around and had sex and joined a gang and killed people. And then I got saved by Jesus. And it was like, oh, that's so awesome, you know? And it was like, I remember as a kid, as a, a little Christian kid hearing all these people's stories thinking, man, I wish I smoked crack. Uh, like, like I had no story, you know what I mean? Like I, I had zero story, uh, you know, I've never even tasted alcohol. That's, that's how goody two shoes I might be. But, um, but who's more in danger of not being broken before God? See, I've noticed the, the crackhead, um, that leads to kind of a broken life. And I've found that people that have gone through some really hard times in life because of their sin, it's easy to be broken before God. I just wanna give a warning to some of you that maybe were, were raised in a very Christian environment and had the clean, guess what? You're just as bad of a sinner and so am I. We've all sinned and we all fall so short. And I'm almost more worried about the person that thinks, well, I've never really partied down. I've never really done the horrible, evil things. But man, we still need to be broken before the Lord and humble and repentant of our sin. Be careful. Don't be that person that, well, I'm, I'm basically that. I don't need to be broken. Nope. You're either one who uh, is broken before the Lord or you will be crushed by the Lord, broken by him. Now, some of you are saying, Pastor Brett, um, I don't know if I like the idea of Jesus crushing people, the stone of crushing. I don't know if I like that. Um, I've never heard Joel Olstein ever talk about that in his sermons. Uh, uh, I, I, I don't know what you're talking. Well, listen, um, don't ignore what Jesus is saying in his own words. This is our text today. Jesus is saying, whosoever shall fall on that stone will be broken, but on whomsoever it, the stone, we know this is Jesus, it will grind him to powder. Powder. Now you say, but Brett, I thought God was loving. He is love. Can I just explain? Don't put our human uh, sloppy agape version of love on God. Love is important to understand. Love d displays itself in different ways. You know, you know, I think we think love is always just being kind and gentle and compassionate and merciful. Those are loving things. But does love also get violent? Um, think about it this way. If... if um, if when my kids were still in the house and my family's there and, and I'm a father and, and I, you know, Brett's guarding his house and suddenly a murderous marauder, like, like the October you know, 7th uh, you know, Hamas coming in and beheading babies and putting them in the ovens and raping women. If, if that guy comes into my house, um, what's the most loving thing I can do? Um, you know, I'm just gonna say, if that happened in my house when, when my kids were in the house, um, because of the love that I have, I would, you would find a very uh, uh, opposition, a strong opposition to that person. Uh, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> now, I know some of you guys are thinking, some of you are like, yeah, Brett, Second Amendment, kill them all. No, that, I'm not talking about that. Uh, I'm saying love will protect. I'm not a pacifist, I'll admit that. But I also think there's a lot of Christians today that are way overboard on the whole thing. And you know, if that guy comes and steals my tires from my pole barn, I'm gonna blow him away. Uh, well, that's not really a Christian loving thing to do. Um, I understand the law should protect us, which sometimes it doesn't, but, um, but you know, this is what you're supposed to remember. Remember Romans chapter 12, this is where stuff like that, you kind of remember, here's what God says, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So vengeance and retribution and all that, that's not our job. But love does protect and love uh, is righteous. And especially when you have perfect love in Jesus Christ, you also have perfect righteousness. So with all that said, part of God's love is to say, love doesn't just wink so like the Hamas who beheaded babies and stuff like that, God's not gonna just go, ah, those wink, wink, nudge, nudge, those guys, uh, they were just in a bad mood and had a tough day, so I'm just gonna let that slide. No, there's a day where the wrath of God is gonna be poured out on a Christ-rejecting, sinful world. That's gonna happen. The Bible talks a lot about that. This is what Jesus is referring to when he says, some people are gonna be broken before him and saved. Others are gonna be crushed. By him, that's the, you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Now, by the way, when's that largely gonna happen? That's gonna happen in the second coming of Jesus. 
Um, and like I said, born as a baby, last time, second time conqueror. First time carpenter, second time uh, conqueror. Judged by the world the first time, coming to judge the world. This is the loving God who's coming back. Um, but this is the key. The apostle Peter um, also shows this dichotomy uh, between the stone, the cornerstone, which is blessing and building and stability and foundation. That stone versus the same stone, which is also a stone of crushing and judgment, wrath and stumbling. Um, Peter deals with that dichotomy uh, in uh, 1 Peter chapter two. Would you flip over there real quick? I know I've got you bouncing around a little bit this morning, but I need you to see, I'm just, I'm just giving you the highlights. We could do this all day. Uh, the place is the stone of offense, the rock of stumbling, the one that was rejected, uh, but was the chief cornerstone. Uh, it's 1 Peter chapter two, starting in verse one. It says, wherefore laying aside all ma with all malice uh, and guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If so be, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So he starts off here just talking about the beautiful grace of God, which is so huge. But then those that have figured out the Lord is gracious, to whom, verse four, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Now, Peter adds a little bit to the stone that was rejected. We've already talked about it from Psalm 118, 22. We've talked about Jesus talking about it. We even saw Peter in Acts 4 in his early ministry. Now as an older man, Peter's saying, check this out. Jesus is the living stone. It's sort of like he's personifying the, the idiom of the stone and saying, Jesus is a living stone. And then he gives another word, precious. <laughs> precious isn't a word I use every day. It's just a dude. I'm just gonna say it. I know this is in incorrect, probably politically, but I don't walk around saying things are precious. You don't hear me, this is so precious. I don't say that. Um, if you're a guy on the construction job and you're like, oh, that's sheetrock. Oh, you did such a precious job. Uh, that just, I don't know. Um, I looked up the Greek word, by the way, for precious, hoping it was more manly. Um, the word is entimos. Like, oh, it didn't help that one. Uh, but the word entimos in the Greek means held in honor, prized, and of great value. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying the, 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 the living stone that was rejected, Jesus, is, is a precious cornerstone, which means held in honor, prized, and of great value. By the way, in the same section, Peter talks about the blood of Jesus being precious the precious blood of Christ. Peter's, you could do a whole uh, family devotion at your house about the things Peter calls precious, which is kind of fun. But as we go on here in 2 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter two, verse four, uh, after saying God, the, you know, sent the, this living stone, precious, chosen, verse five, he says, you also, I'm doing a quick version, that's the church. That's the Christians Peter's talking to. He says, verse five, you also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So we've got the precious cornerstone established. That's Jesus, perfect, perfectly square, plumb, level. Um, he's the perfect one. And then guess what? We're also living stones being built on the rock, Jesus, and we're being built into a house. Um, you know, we talk about the church, we're gonna to go to the church and we think of this building as the church, but this is not the church. This is the church, the people. And we're living stones being fitted together with Christ. So if you're the nincompoop that goes out and says, Brett, I don't need organized religion. I don't like organized religion. Uh, I'm just gonna go fly fishing. That's my sanctuary. That's my church. I just worship God as I'm fly fishing. Uh, can I just say, that's ridiculous. You're actually told to not forsake the assembling of yourself together, first of all. But second of all, Peter says, guess what? You're a, a living stone, which means you're being chipped and hewn and chiseled, shaped to fit together with Christ and with the body of Christ, creating a, a body or a building, depending on what chapter of the Bible you're reading, that is God's plan and purpose. There's no such thing as the Lone Ranger Christian. Well, what if I don't like uh, Christians? Um, uh, that's why God's chipping away at you. He needs to chip off all those things that we don't like about you. So you'll fit together with us and we're being chipped on. So the things you don't like about us, God's doing a work and he's fitting his building together. 
that should be chiseled and it might even hurt sometimes. But he says, you're a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Well, he goes on in verse six. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion. This is Isaiah 28, by the way, he's quoting. I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Whoever believes on the precious cornerstone of Zion, Jesus, will not be confounded. The word confounded means disgraced or shamed. Are you ever worried about someday standing before God feeling total shame for how wacko you were in this life? Well, if you are broken before the stone, the precious stone, you will not be in disgrace and you will not be in shame. That's the promise of God. Um, then he goes on, verse seven, unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them that which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. God forbid that there be people here in this sanctuary. This is why I'm coming on a little strong about this one, because if you're the person saying, yeah, whatever, on the stone thing, and I don't wanna be broken before Jesus. Uh, and I, if you stumble at the word of God, then guess what? You're on the wrong side of the stone already. Um, is, it, is Jesus a, a precious cornerstone to you? Because to those that believe, he is precious. And I'll bet you most of this congregation here are saying, yep, the rock of our salvation, Jesus, is precious to me. But if you're one, when you read the Bible and you say, I don't know, I don't like, this, this kind of stumbles me. I don't like what the Bible says about divorce. I'm gonna throw that out. I don't like that divorce part. Or I don't like what the Bible says about um, women in ministry. I don't like that. And you're stumbled by that. Or I don't like the Bible says about sex before marriage and you're a young couple living together saying, yeah, whatever on the Bible, everybody lives together. Everybody sleeps together. Stop being such a religious prude, Christians. And you rip that page out. Guess what? The Bible says, it says did, you, did you see what it said? It says, those that stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they're, uh, they're appointed, the stone has become, verse eight, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he's not precious to you. This is why it's important to, when you read the Bible, don't judge the Bible. Let the Bible judge you. The word of God is living and powerful and true. And this is so important. Um, don't read the Bible uh, saying, I don't like this and I don't like that, but I do like the other. I've noticed people like to pick and choose what they like in the Bible. That's not the way it works. Now, here's where it starts to get interesting. That's individually. As individuals, that's, that's the choice you're gonna have to make. Am I gonna accept Jesus Christ and be saved and be broken, repentant before him, humbled like a child and come to the Lord and say, forgive me for my sins and be saved? Or are you gonna stumble at the word and say, yeah, whatever. And then you're gonna be on the wrong side of that stone, the crushing stone. But not only is this true individually, but uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about even nationally the nations. I wanna show you, before we kind of wrap it up today, I wanna show you something that's really big. It's in the book of Daniel. Would you flip over to Daniel? This is the last place I'll have you turn, but Daniel chapter two. Now, while you're turning to Daniel and looking for Daniel in your Bible, um, in Daniel chapter two, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. Daniel and his buddies, they're, they're there in captivity. They're Jewish boys stuck in captivity. But Daniel's esteemed and he becomes one of the wise men of, of Babylon. It's kind of a great story. But Nebuchadnezzar is arguably the most powerful, maybe one of the most powerful kings that ever lived. Uh, historians argue uh, that Nebuchadnezzar was, was pretty impressive as a king. Not a nice guy, um, but he was powerful and maybe one of the most uh, wealthy, powerful kings ever in history. But the Bible records that he wakes up in the, in the morning and he's troubled by a dream that he had there in Daniel chapter two. Have you ever had a dream where you wake up and like, was that real? Uh, or what did that mean? Like, what was it? And you're troubled? Well, this is Nebuchadnezzar. But the problem is he can't remember what the dream was. He just knows he's troubled and he can't remember and he doesn't know what it means. So he goes and gets, what does a king do in those days? You know, uh, you know in the 500 BC era, what does a king do? Well, he calls all of his wise men and soothsayers, Chaldeans and, and the, the magicians, you know, the Psychic Friends Network guys, all those people. He calls them all together and says, okay guys, I had a dream and it's troubling. You need to tell me what my dream was and tell me what it means. 
And they said, well, <laughs> tell us what the dream was and we'll tell you what it means. And I think he was on to these charlatans, these fakes saying, no, you guys need to tell me what my dream was and tell me what it means. Well, these, the, the, the wise men, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, the magicians, the Psychic Friends Network, they all said, this is bad because Nebuchadnezzar said, if you can't tell me this, I'm gonna chop your bodies into pieces and make your houses piles of manure. Now with Nebuchadnezzar, just FYI, that's not an idle threat. He likes chopping people up. That's something he does with glee and makes people's houses piles of manure. So this was a very real threat. And the magicians and all those guys are like, what are we gonna do? They're gonna chop us and they freak out. Well, it just so happens that Daniel never gets the memo, even though he's one of the wise men of Babylon. So the, the wise men, they run over to Daniel's house and they say, Daniel, what's the, why aren't you freaking out like us? You know, don't you know? And Daniel's like, what's going on? Well, the king's gonna chop us up and make our houses piles of manure unless we can tell him what his dream was and what it means. Daniel's like, okay, chill out. And, and so, so Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go to their knees and pray before God and say, Lord, you're able to reveal these dreams. And the Lord revealed to Daniel the dream and what it meant. So Daniel comes up to King Nebuchadnezzar, hey, I got it. Um, and that's, that's kind of where we pick it up in Daniel chapter two, verse 36. Daniel 2, 36. Daniel says to King Nebi, this is the dream and we will tell thee, the, uh, tell thee interpretation therefore thereof before the king. And he starts out and says, thou king art the king of kings for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom. Now pause here for a second. I, I gotta take a tangent just for a second here. Um, who put Nebuchadnezzar in power? It says right here, Dad says, God has made, given you a kingdom uh, uh, and you've got power, strength, and glory. That was all given to you by God. Um, I hope you guys in 2024, as it's election year, I've noticed that Christians tend to lose our minds around election years. Christians act weird and bad during election years. But can I just argue and pray that the Lord will give us grace this year that we as Christians are the most squared away people in all the country. Um, yes, I believe we should all vote and, and we have a responsibility. I, I, I'm very firm on that. We, we live in, uh, you know, and you might say, well, Brett, it's rigged or this or that, or you might say all that stuff. But I still think we all have a duty to say, we're gonna at least vote. We, we have the privilege of that in our, in our democracy. But Brett, what if, what if somebody gets in the office uh, that's not supposed to be there? Well, see, this is where you and I might have a little difference. See, I'll vote, but whoever gets in office, I'm gonna trust that the Lord's got a plan. And the Lord knows, because guess what? I'm one who believes the Lord's gonna put whoever he wants in there or whether it's a he or a she, I don't know, but the Lord's gonna put him in office. And one thing I guarantee you, whoever we elect this year, we're gonna elect a sinner. <laughs> no matter who they are, they're gonna be a sinner. Now, did you guys see the news? Some of you news junkies probably know this, but um, you know, our, our fairly new speaker of the house uh, is actually shockingly kind of a, uh, a sold out Christian. Like, and it seems to me like, a, from what I can see, a pretty squared away Christian. And, and because of that, he's getting a lot of heat and flack. Oh, he's a born again Christian. And people want him out already. Like it's, it's kind of interesting, uh, Johnson, Mike Johnson. But, but uh, did you see the big headline this week? Um, this was the big news. Bannon blast Johnson for saying Biden presidency is God's will. Uh, did anybody see this? And basically they're using this to say, I can't believe Johnson's saying, now their implication, what they're trying to imply is that the you know, House, House Speaker is saying, uh, it's God's plan that Biden's the president and he's wonderful and we should all get behind everything he wants to do. Uh, they're kind of acting like that, but that's not really what Johnson was saying. In fact, let me read to you his real statement. Johnson on Wednesday, this past Wednesday was asked if he believes Biden presidency was God's will, to which the speaker explained, he is a Bible believing Christian he said, the Bible believe, uh, says that God is the one that raises up people in authority and puts them down. I believe God is sovereign. By the way, so did the founders of our country, Johnson said. They acknowledge that our rights don't come from government. They come from God and we're made in his image. Everybody's made in the same. We all are given equal rights and value. And that's something that we defend. So if you believe all the things of the Bible, then you also believe that God is the one that allows people to be raised in authority and it must've been God, God's will then, that's my belief. That's what he said. Now, Psalm 75, seven says, but God is the judge, he puts, puts one down, but he also sets up another. Um, if you read your Bible, 
Did God put people into power that were a little bit wacko? The first king of Israel was horrible. And that was God, God putting Saul in that kingship. Um, Samson, we all kind of love Samson because he was strong and he could do crazy stuff. He was wacko. I mean, how would you like your president of the United States uh, saying, you know what, uh, who's our worst enemy? And I'm gonna go sleep with all the prostitutes of their town. That was, that was Samson. He was going around all the prostitutes sleeping around. Like, like these, are, these are guys that God put into power. The reason I go into that is because um, here at Nebuchadnezzar, is a, we know he's a bad dude. He's already wanting to chop people up and make their houses manure. That's bad enough. Uh, Biden hasn't even done that yet. Um, Trump didn't even do that. Like, uh, no matter what your position is, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he was God's guy. Put him into power. By the way, if you know Bible prophecy, whoever the next president is, I think will also indicate how close we are to the end times. And one of the things we know in the Bible, America's not really in the end times picture uh, as much, which says a lot. Uh, so I'm just gonna say I'll vote dutifully, but I'm also gonna be totally at peace with whoever goes into office because God's got a plan and a purpose for everything. So let that maybe set the stage for this coming year. Well, back to Daniel chapter two, where God uh, through Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you have been set up as a glorious king with power uh, and strength. Now, um, now, what's interesting about this um, is I'm gonna try to do this fast because we're running out of time. So basically Daniel says, okay, here's the dream. And I'll, I'll just make this quick. He said, Nebi, you saw in your dream a big statue and the head was of gold, the breast and the arms was of silver, the belly uh, and thighs were of brass and the legs were of iron, but the feet were part iron, part clay with toes, 10 toes. Um, and, he, and, and then Daniel starts to explain, here's, here, that, that's the dream. Um, but it also, uh, you saw this statue, but then a rock, a huge stone that was up on a mountain was, that was cut without hands, meaning people weren't making the stone. It was, a, it was not a man-made thing. A stone cut without hands rolled down the mountain and smashed your statue into, into powder. Um, and then that stone started to grow and got bigger and bigger and became an everlasting mountain that would be forevermore. The end. That's the end of your dream. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, wow, you got it. That was right. That was what I saw. Well, what does it mean? Well, Daniel said, okay, Nebi, you in this dream are the head of gold. That's the Babylonian empire. You're the head of gold. Now, after your kingdom, now this is Daniel speaking prophetically. This is an amazing thing that he does, he's about to do. He's gonna say the breast and the arms are the, are the kingdom that's coming. Any of you guys know who came after the Babylonian empire to conquer the known world at that point? the Medo-Persian empire, the Medes and the Persians, uh, they would be next. And Daniel says, that's the next kingdom. It's gonna be a mighty kingdom, uh, two arms, Medes and Persians. Um, then the belly and the thighs are of brass. Who, for, for you guys that know history, who came after the Medo-Persians? The Greeks led by Alexander the Great. Um, and uh, you, you might call it the Macedonian empire or the Greek empire. Um, and so, uh, and, and also Daniel said, and by the way, that kingdom will subdue the whole earth, which is exactly what Alexander did. He conquered the whole known world. Uh, all, the Bible with great precision tells this. And then after the Greeks, who came next? The Roman empire, which he says, that'll be the legs. And there was East and West Rome, the two legs of the Roman empire. By the way, this is a map of the great uh, Roman empire at its peak. <clears throat> right around 117 AD was their peak of power, but um, they kind of looked at it as East and West. But what's interesting, the Eastern side of the Roman empire was very much uh, uh, conquering the Arab countries, the Arab regions. Um, so the, the Roman empire was called the Iron uh, Empire. But when did, it become, when did the Roman empire, out of the legs of Rome, suddenly came these feet. And the feet uh, were part iron and part clay. What in the world is he talking about there? Well, this is where uh, we start to have to do a little careful study. Um, so by the way, so far, Daniel pr prophesied centuries of nations that would come and con conquer the world. So much accuracy in Daniel's prophecy that a lot of the secularists, even the colleges and universities today will quote an uh, ancient historian named Porphyry and say, well, the book of Daniel's a forgery. Daniel didn't really write it. And it had to have been written in AD 70, uh, pardon me, AD 90, um, because there's no way Daniel could have known about all these kingdoms. 
So they, they, they assume that it's a forgery. Um, if you're a high schooler just going into college and they, they give that nonsense to you, I'm gonna give you a freebie. This is so easy to answer. It's not even hard, not even for a second. They say, oh, the Daniel was a forger is too accurate. There's no way Daniel could have known. Um, here's what you say. Um, the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. We know exactly when the Septuagint was translated. It was in 270 BC. So what's so cool about that, guess what book is also included in the Septuagint of the Old Testament? The book of Daniel. So their dumb argument that Daniel uh, was dated somewhere around 90 AD, it's provably false because the book of Daniel's in the Septuagint that for sure dates at least to 270 BC, which includes still stuff that is yet to unfold in this prophecy that we just went over here. Um, watch out for these pipe puffing, cardigan sweater wearing professors. Whenever they're denying the Bible, denying Jesus, uh, calling things false from the Bible, uh, they've been drinking their bathwater, and, and their answer, the answers are easy for the most part, to talk to these guys. Well, anyway, so you got the Roman Empire. Now, um, the feet of toes and, and, uh, and of iron and clay, that's, that's where it gets a little more intense. In fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna direct you to some of the scripture. Uh, go with me to Daniel 2, 43, the verse 43 in the story. Um, Daniel says to him uh, in verse 43, as whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves, this kingdom, with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Have you ever tried to mix up a bowl of iron and clay? That's ridiculous. It's like, you can't mix iron and clay. That's, that's ridiculous. Um, that's the point. Um, can I just show you that the, the substances go from greatness to weakness, gold, silver, brass, iron, iron and clay. There's, a, there's an image there that God wants us to see in this prophecy. But verse 44 goes on. He says, in the days of these kings, which kings? The, the, the 10 toes of iron and clay. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Okay, now this, this is where you have to put your brain on. Click. Um, has that happened yet? The kingdom of God has not happened yet. Um, uh, we know that we're told by Jesus, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So you say, Brett, I don't get it. There were other kingdoms that came after, came after the Roman Empire. Why don't we list them? And, and why do we suddenly fast forward to the last kingdom before the kingdom of God is set up? Here's the answer, it's real simple. All the prophecies of the book of Daniel are related to the nation Israel, the Jews. The stopwatch on the prophecy clock stops during the Roman Empire. Anybody know why? Right. In AD 70, the Roman crushed Israel and the Jews were scattered all over the world. No longer do they even exist as a nation. For almost 2000 years, they were in the diaspora, the scattering of the Jews all over the world. They were no longer a nation. Stopwatch of prophecy is off. But then the Bible says you can start the stopwatch once Israel becomes a nation again and starts to become profitable and fruitful and mighty, then when the fig tree blossoms, you're gonna see something that's very different. You're gonna see uh, a nation being blessed. And, and that's when this, somewhere along the, the way, Israel and this prophecy is gonna be picked back up. And it's gonna, what, what can we assume? Out of the old Roman empire, the iron legs is gonna come a weak sort of 10 nation confederation, uh, the 10 toes. But, during those kings, let's go back to our text, verse 44, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. Now notice this, which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it, his kingdom, shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. It shall stand forever. For as much, verse 45, as you saw the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. Don't you love Daniel? He doesn't say, did I get it right? He didn't say that. He's like, that's the dream. That's what it means, the end. And, and stupid Nebuchadnezzar, verse 46, then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and worshiped Daniel. Uh, bad response. But anyway, that's a whole nother story. 
This is the stone that crushes, the stone that was cut without hands. And by the way, there's some people that believe we as Christians are gonna be ushering in the kingdom of God. We have to do it. A kingdom now theology or dominion theology. Uh, I, I don't believe that. Uh, we're not the ones who are gonna bring the kingdom. It's the stone that is cut without human hands that's gonna come whenever he wants to come. And he's gonna come rolling down, if you would, and smash the nations. When Jesus returns, what's one of the first things on his list of things to do? If you know, he's gonna put his foot down on the Mount of Olives, but he's very shortly thereafter gonna go and fight the nations of the world and crush them. Same thing as Daniel too. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, well, the reason I go into all this stuff is because um, the individual part of the, st the, the stone, Jesus Christ, there's still the, the wrath and the judgment that you don't wanna be a part of. But even when Christ comes nationally, he's gonna come and crush those kingdoms. So, so the feet and toes of the clay and the iron, that's future kingdoms that we don't, you know, I could talk about, um, you know, how nations come and go out of the European Union and Brexit and all that. We could talk about BRICS. Uh, we could talk about a bunch of things that might be these future kingdoms. That's a whole nother study. Um, but actually this Daniel 2 reminds me that there's coming a time where the Lord's going to say, I am the rock, the, the rock of offense, the stone of crushing. The key is not only for the nations to realize that time's coming, but most importantly for you individually to say, man, I don't wanna be a part of that, the crushing part. Like I said earlier, the way you, you don't do that, the way you avoid the wrath of God, the judgment of God is simply the love of God. God loved the world so much. See, before you're all upset about Jesus being the rock that crushes, can I remind you of all the stone pictures in the Bible? There's hundreds of them. One that I didn't mention. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 10, when it says the rock that water spewed out and fed the children of Israel water, the rock that followed them was, anybody? Jesus Christ, that's what it says. That rock was Jesus Christ. Huh? Well, again, there's a rock, but how did the water come out? Does anybody remember what, what instituted the rock gushing water? The rock was smitten. You see, before we get all upset about Jesus crushing people with rocks and stuff, he was the one who was crushed for you on your behalf. Like his, his innocent blood that Peter said is a precious stone, but it's also the precious blood of Jesus. Um, Jesus was smitten. That's why, by the way, when Moses struck the rock the second time, he broke the, the picture there. That's why God was upset with Moses about that. There was only one time Jesus would be smitten for all, and that would be the cross of Jesus Christ. If you look at the hand that's gonna be holding the sword, if you would, of judgment, that same hand has nail hole scars in it. And it's because he loved us so much that he said, I don't want you to be under the crushing stone. So if you wanna be dumb, you can stand under the stone and let it crush you. Or better, you can repent of your sin and say, Lord, forgive me a sinner. And believe and accept and confess that you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and accept that. And suddenly he's no longer a rock of offense, but he's a firm foundation. And we get to be builded together with him to be a part of his plan and purpose. It's a great privilege.